Hello and welcome to the journalism.co.uk podcast with me, Daniel Green. This week we were in London attending an event which looked at investigative reporting around the world, hosted by the Global Investigative Journalism Network. We heard some compelling accounts on the tough reporting conditions faced by investigative journalists from all corners of the globe. In this week's podcast, we narrow our focus to South America by speaking to Catalina Libera Guerrero, Spanish editor at GIJM. Before we dive in, let me quickly remind you of our News Rewired conference taking place on the 27th of November at Reuters in London. You can now book your early bird ticket, which will save you £50. Book now, and you've also got a chance to win a memory mic from Sennheiser. Check newsrewired.com for more details, save the date, and we'll see you there. There are two particular countries where I am most worried uh, today. One of them is Venezuela, the other one is Nicaragua. In these two countries, journalists are leaving the country. Living conditions are hard, but also the regimes of Daniel Ortega and Nicolás Maduro have been persecuting journalists. They have been accusing them of conspiring against the government. And these are very manipulative governments. So that was Catalina describing two countries that will crop up a lot in today's podcast. We will be looking at censorship in South America, the ways it manifests itself and the scenarios it presents, and of course the difficulties that brings. But also we look at the options that journalists in the region have in order to report on the most crucial stories. First, let's get some more context for what it's like for journalists in the authoritarian regimes of Venezuela and Nicaragua, as well as some other neighbouring countries. There are journalists now in jail in both countries, and others who are free, they've had to leave the country, they're in exile. Some have been sued legally as well without any possibility of a free and fair trial. So it's a very complex situation uh, in those two countries. We're starting to worry also about Jair Bolsonaro's Brazil and also Andres Manuel Lopez Obrador in Mexico. They've just come to power, but they have a very populist stance and a way of dealing with the press that is can be hostile sometimes. Uh, they can also be manipulative, they can also uh, point at journalists blaming them for um, exposing some wrongdoings. In Mexico, for example, it's one of the countries in the world where most, where more journalists are getting killed, they're getting murdered for their investigations, for talking about the ties between corrupt politicians and narcos, and so uh, in the case of Colombia as well. I mean, you have illegal armed actors who are also wanting to silence journalists. And then in other countries, it's not the government, but you also have criminal gangs, you have armed violence, you have other kinds of actors who might not be presidents or autocrats, but they also endanger the lives of journalists. You have narco-traffickers in Mexico, in Guatemala, in Honduras, in Colombia. And this is a difficult situation also for journalists in those regions. And you also have journalists exposing, for example, mining companies, environmental disasters in certain areas, things like failing systems in healthcare other kinds of social problems and issues that may not be the tradition of 
journalistic investigations in the region, they are increasingly also becoming important subjects. Let's focus on Venezuela. Picturing myself as a journalist there, in a day-to-day newsroom scenario, what are my options for reporting a story at this moment in time? You have no access to official sources. If you ask the government for a comment, if you're asking for uh, an official stance against something, if you want figures, if you want data, that is not accessible to you. Mm -hmm. So you need to know that your reporting might be lopsided in a traditional sense of the word, but you might not have access to official sources or to an official comment from the government. But there are ways of getting that information. There are leaks, there are sources who might be able to talk to you off the record, who might be able to paint some sort of um, panorama. So, I mean, there are ways, but of course it's trickier, it's more dangerous, and it's, it's difficult to access that. It requires a lot of tenacity, be resourceful, think out of the box. You mm. need to tackle the formers former employees of institutions, of ministries, of those who had power, at some point might decide, you know what, I think I don't want to be a part of this anymore. I'm stepping out, and this is what's been happening. You know, former ministers, former uh, party officials are, you know, saying increasingly, you know, we don't want to be part of this so-called revolution anymore and they're willing to expose certain things that when they were inside they would not talk about it as openly of course to journalists but now they're willing to do so. The national uh, prosecutor Luisa Ortega, Mm -hmm. she was uh, the head of of the national prosecutor's office, she fled the country and she's been talking to journalists but you have a former minister of health who left the country two weeks ago, he's now in Colombia, he's now talking to the media about the situation in the healthcare system and how it all collapsed. The farmers are always something you need to, to look at closely. So story in hand, check. But whether it goes to print is the next question. Will media organisations run that story? Foreign media organisations, but also independent, non-profit media, smaller, you know, uh, startup. For example, uh, Armando.info, are, they are members of JIJN in Venezuela. You have Efecto Cocuyo, you have El Pitazo. I mean, they're doing important work, significant work. The mainstream media have been silenced in a double strategy. So, on one hand, they have been facing legal action like demands, and they, the Venezuelan government was also financing some of these media and they have taken away that what do you call it like the advertising and then the other way they have been doing it is they have actually bought newspapers or TV stations not directly but through other kinds of uh, private investors who are uh, I guess their allies or partners What I wanted to understand is what censorship looks like in the newsroom and in a typical scenario where an editor is handed a story they know they can't run. Ultimas Noticias used to be the largest newspaper in the country. There was a change of ownership. So the new owners came in and they had a full investigative unit. Right now, none of the journalists who were part of that investigative unit, and there were more than eight investigative journalists being part of that unit, they're all out of the newspaper. They quit. Uh, some of them, you know, 
at some point decided I can't do this anymore. Why? Whenever they would pitch some stories, they would be very heavily edited or they would just say, this does not go in at all. Self-censorship also uh, started taking place. So on one hand, you had an editor who was saying, we're not running that story. And on the other hand, you had journalists saying, that's not even gonna pass, so I'm not even gonna do it. And sometimes names would be removed out of the story, no. the title would be completely changed. So these journalists created um, alternative ways of publishing those censored stories. They launched, for example, a Twitter account or a Facebook page uh, that was called Sin Censura, like Ultimas Noticias without any censorship. And they would post their original drafts on social media. And this started happening as well, El Universal. They were uh, very good reporting economics uh, and everything related to like oil and just the economic story. They started facing the same situation and they also started publishing their uncensored stories, ones that were not allowed to be published. In terms of how the reality of events can be distorted, listen to this example by Catalina of how a blackout in Venezuela that left parts of the country without light for more than 30 hours had two versions of events. The official narrative was that there had been an attack by imperialist North American forces, that they had shot at some transformers or, you know, equipment that was involved in handling the grid or supplying power to all of the country. The reality is that for years, the Venezuelan government has not invested in its own uh, electricity system. And it's in a dire state. But their official narrative is always, ha it always has to fit into a conspiratorial theory. And they always need to blame their typical enemies. And so, a journalist who worked for a radio program in Caracas was talking about, before the blackout happened, let me make that clear, he was talking about things that people can do or how do they adapt or cope when there is a blackout because there are regular blackouts in the country. Well, the government used one phrase or two phrases and some of his tweets to say, ah, you knew about the conspiracy. You are part of the conspiracy. So when this whole massive blackout happened, they came for him, they detained him, they raided his house, they held him hostage for a couple of hours. There was massive international pressure and also a huge amount of his own followers on Twitter. This is a, a well-known journalist. And uh, just people just poured their outrage and demanded that they let him free. Uh, but this is a way of how one specific event can be turned over or manipulated to fit a government's narrative that might not even be touched with reality. So are the smaller organizations, the startups and NGOs, getting the engagement and traction needed? It's very tough. I'm not sure the amount of, of engagement that there is. I mean, uh, Twitter in Venezuela is very active. Uh, lots of people, you know, they, they go to Twitter to find out what is going on. But at the same time, there's also a lot of fake news and there's also different versions of the same story going on. There's a lot of political comment, there's a lot of diatribe, there's, you know, chaos. But this is a very 
politically polarized country. People might not be able to trust these tiny little media outlets yet, sometimes because they don't know about them. But since the mainstream media, because newspapers were bought, uh, TV channels were shut down, since this happened, these little tiny outlets, they're like a, like a light in a very dark panorama. For those smaller organisations, how can they be heard among the noise of populist leaders working to discredit them and accusing them of fake news and betrayal? I think your reporting and your stories have to speak louder than whatever any president or any uh, demagogue or populist can say about your story. Your stories need to be impeccable, they need to be extremely well reported, they need to be extremely well written, they need to be careful stories because you need to be aware of the context that's around. It's a very adverse context, it's a dangerous context. And so I think the key issue is you need to have clarity, first and foremost, of the story that you're telling and then try to do it in the best way possible. And once you're attacked and once you're being threatened and once you're getting all this dirt uh, and versions of what supposedly you are trying to communicate or not, you need to be absolutely clear because that's your best defense. Uh, and, and the best way to do it is to do the best journalism that you can do and if that means partnering also with others and bringing others to strengthen your story we have as journalists this idea that we need to compete with each other to see who gets the greatest scoop to see who gets the best story to see who tells it better in these times you need solidarity you need to be thinking about your colleagues as well about your friends not only about yourself this is not about being the star of the moment you know it's about doing your journalism in the best way possible. So if you know that your colleague who works for another outlet is also investigating the same kind of story, why don't you join forces? Why don't you collaborate with each other, you know? We need that kind of strength. We need that kind of unity sometimes. Like competition is, is healthy, but to a point. At the same time, you need to think strategically, find allies and other journalists are good allies and then other organizations are good allies and they will help you when it comes for the need to counterattack. So what can be done? Catalina says collaboration is key. But how does collaboration between news outlets in South America offer a ray of light? I actually think people should look at what's happening in South America and how journalists are collaborating between themselves to carry out very complex, very sometimes dangerous investigations, but they're working together to, to make this happen. And I think I'm positive in the sense that there's just not one network. There are many networks of journalists happening at this moment. And some involve been in the trade for 30 years, some journalists who are very young and rookie and eager to learn, and they're working together. And there's also networks between different countries who all want to investigate what's happening to environmental leaders who are being killed in different countries of the region, for example. And then there's another network that's investigating what's happening to the health system in most of our countries, or what happened to the oil money that Venezuela sent to other countries uh, at discount prices. How is that affecting other regions? 
All of these projects need collaboration between journalists, different types of journalists from different types of media. And I am amazed and actually inspired by some of the work that some of these reporters are doing all over. What can journalists who aren't subject to restrictions on what they can report do to help the cause? I just think you need to keep talking about all of these issues. Mm. You need to, to publish these stories. You need to spread the word. I think the best service journalists can do for other journalists is, you know what, it's time to speak out about what is going on in different regions of the world, all the threats and obstacles that journalists are facing, but at the very same time, all of the opportunities and the great examples and the good stuff that people are doing all over. I think that's equally important. You need to have interest, you need to be curious, you need to doubt, you need to go beyond your own biases and prejudices and look for different stories for different sources just don't stick with the same newspaper media outlet you've always read or the same tv show that you've always read you do you guys do podcasts there are now an enormous amount of podcasts flourishing all over the world in latin america too people are experimenting with these different type of formats and Things are getting done in a new way, in a more exploratory way. Things are perhaps less formal, less institutionalized, but that gives you also an enormous amount of possibilities and new ways of, of creating journalism. I think it's a very good time for journalists to experiment, to see what's going on, to learn from what other people are doing in the region. So it, it's an invitation to just keep your mind open. So it's not all doom and gloom. Catalina points to the Lava Jato car wash corruption scandal as the key example of where collaboration has produced a story which would not otherwise have been possible. And here's why. If it wasn't because a group of journalists who have been working together for a few years now in different countries came together and said, we need to tackle this together. Also because this story started in Brazil, it's Portuguese. The rest of the continent speaks Spanish. You needed someone who could be able to be fluent in both languages, who could be able to translate the documents, uh, the court indictments, like, you know, it was a very complex story. And Odebrecht, which was the company that was, you know, working in most of Latin American countries and involved in the bribes and the scheme and everything, it was just a huge, huge network. You needed also to try to piece together the, the pieces that were spread all over and see, okay, how do we even understand how this happened, you know? You need to talk to each other. You need to work together to be able to understand the story first and then tell it to your readers or your audience. I mean, right now you have at least four former presidents in Peru being prosecuted. In Brazil, most of the political parties, I might be wrong, but 26 political parties were involved in this Lava Jato uh, corruption scheme. That's all of the parties of a country. And then you're having a ripple effect in Argentina, in Panama, where you also have some presidents being investigated. It's all over. In some countries, there have been more advances than in others, but it's the journalists who have taken this investigation. They're the ones that are keeping like the rhythm of it going. Prosecutors are behind the journalists. They have asked journalists to come and provide evidence, to come and testify, to come and say, what did you discover? 
journalists have been much quicker than most of the justice system in the region. And let me tell you something else. They have, at least in the case of Peru, they have actually forced the judicial system to make reforms because they also need to start partnering and working collaboratively with other prosecutors in other countries. If it wasn't for them, other prosecutors in other countries might not be talking to each other. And that's also a change, a positive change that's been happening. And it, it has been fueled by journalists themselves. So what's next? Just what is the gravity of the situation facing investigative journalists in the road ahead? There's so much corruption, there's so much human rights abuses, there's all sorts of things happening uh, we don't even know about yet. And there is a difficult political climate in the region in general. Um, there are new presidents just starting, like Jair Bolsonaro in Brazil, um, or Andres Manuel Lopez Obrador in Mexico. Some presidents are coming out. There's an election in Argentina in October. There are local elections in Colombia. I mean, there's a ton of stuff to do. We have environmental issues. We have social issues. Uh, we also have, it's a continent with indigenous population that has not necessarily been included. Uh, there's human rights abuses in different parts of the, of the continent. We have narco trafficking. I mean, we have a migrant crisis going on from Venezuelans who are leaving the country into the rest of the region, but you also have poor Central Americans fleeing Honduras, Guatemala, El Salvador, now with things getting worse in Nicaragua, also from Nicaragua. So, I mean, we're not short of problems at all. Some incredible insights from Catalina, and I'd like to thank her for her time to speak with me. And of course, thank you to you at home or on the commute for tuning in. Before I leave you, I'm going to pass you over to Jasmine for our courses board, who has some great training opportunities to share with you. Want to start making your own videos for social media? Join our one day creating social video workshop to find out how to shoot and edit films specifically for Twitter, Facebook and Instagram. It takes place on the 24th of June in central London. You can find out more at journalism.co.uk slash S43. That's all we have time for this week. Don't forget, if you'd like to feature on a journalism.co.uk podcast, you can get in touch with us at Journalism News on Twitter. But for now, until next time.